Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on-demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses, and if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. When you hear the word community, what does that bring up in you? What comes up for me is complexity. Community is where stories born, reborn, carried. Communities are infused with stories of creation, of right relations. A vision. I am within a constellation of adults. We share time-tested bonds. And we are different from each other, not just in appearance, but in our ways of seeing, our ways of being. I'm learning to give my gifts, and a big part of that is learning how to help others give theirs. We're raising our children together, and so the children see many possibilities of what being an adult can be. The children are free to roam, to take risks, to learn, all within a strong container. We also have a constellation of elders in council with one another. They show us many colors of elderhood. We value them and hear them, yet we make our own choices. No one here is in a position of power, just influence based on character and wisdom. We know that we are also nested within communities and stories larger than us. Our human stories are interwoven with those of plants, animals, fungus. As we have our ancestry the history of our changing DNA, so do they. All of us together are nested within the larger story of Earth, within her currents of air and ocean, her freezing and thawing, her shifting plates of stone which transform entire continents. And she herself is spinning in space, along with her neighboring planets, all of them circling the sun, who is in turn circling our galactic core. We have our local economy and governance, which is our primary economy and governments. Mostly, we don't exchange currency, but skills, food, crafts, and the like. A lot of the time, we don't keep count. We always have gifts circulating among us. There are common ideals which unify us, and these are rooted deeper than any one of us. We're discovering them more deeply as we go along, and we keep ourselves flexible for what emerges. We balance intention with malleability. 
We have festivals for harvests, for summers and winter solstice and equinox, for the coming of salmon, geese, for the budding of fruit trees, for the re-emergence of the bees. We take responsibility together for our larger world. We do the work. When I go on a journey, either for trade or pilgrimage or seeking a vision, I know that I will be welcomed back, met anew, with all my changes welcomed too. One of the most beautiful gifts in the world is the gift of encouragement. When someone encourages you, that person helps you over a threshold you might otherwise never have crossed on your own. John O'Donohue I remember a time of circled singers I remember away into the stone a flame from those above me helps me find my way down shadow bright kin sing sky soil song. Daylight calls Through the way above me Flame has sputtered With the old ones in this womb Dancing painted creatures Voices coming with me Join my people's joyous I wish I had community. Somewhere along the way, we lost it. I live in an apartment where I don't know my neighbors except to nod and smile when we see each other in the hallway. If something goes wrong, I don't know that I could count on them. I've never even asked them to for a favor. They probably wouldn't notice if I moved out or died. We have to pay for everything now. Food, childcare, festivals. We used to grow more food to take care of each other's kids, hold our own celebrations. All this concrete and steel cut off from the wider world. I can only see one tree from my window. Once I was in a community where we would meet every day, sing together, pray together, eat together. I guess I was lucky in that way. But there are things we do I'm not comfortable with. There are words in scripture I am not comfortable with. I came in this community because it fulfilled my longings to sing together, to laugh together, to pray together. But I can't hang around here anymore when no one's willing to have an authentic expression where if they knew who I really am, I would be exiled. 
Calling Community, this time on StoryPaths. In the circles in which I now move, community is certainly a big topic. There's a sense of having lost it in modern culture at large, but of remembering it in our bones. Remembering what it's like to emerge from your home to dozens of people who know you, who wish you well, with whom you share your fate. The circle the village, the tribe, shared stories, belonging. Do you long for this? I do, and I also feel an accompanying warning that it's too naive to want deep community, that the world is too harsh and broken to host such a thing anymore, that I'll be duped into conforming to the agenda of others instead of finding a true synthesis with them that I don't want to share my personal business and I need too much personal space to be in community. And yet, and yet I long to be reliable for other humans, to depend on them, to work through struggles, to be in circles, to open myself, be vulnerable, and to also together renew culture and renew our ecology. I wonder, could we be together in very different ways, ways that seem fantastical and ridiculous when we're looking at the status quo of our cities and towns? Could we root in our species' ancient past and be alive to the context of now? And now. 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 The old rhythms pulsing now, entering deep now. exchanges with each other, now. resourcing each other, now. so we can truly step into now. what is being asked of us now. in these terrible, now. wonderful now. times in which we live. I want to say that this episode is by no means a comprehensive dissertation about the various types of community that are available or about the steps of building community. Rather, it is an exploration into this vast subject from where I'm situated in my life, and it's also an inquiry from those with whom I'm now in some form of community with about their view of community. Community can be beautiful, moving, deepening, cathartic, It is also certainly messy, and especially at this point in history, when many of us are processing generations and generations of unresolved issues with each other, and 
We're striving to make communities such as we've never personally had the experience of living in. The broken times. It's a deep and natural urge to want to pass on to the future generations something better than we inherited. But building community is a huge learning curve now, one that may not be complete in a lifetime. And it's bound to be super awkward at different points along the way. It's being in relationship, the difficulties of being in relationship, multiplied many times. It's cathartic, awkward, embarrassing, grief-inducing, celebratory, and life-enhancing, and, I dare say, necessary. I feel that much of the work of our time is about how we are with each other, learning how to be different with each other. How are we going to address our world's many dire needs if we can't do right by each other? And how will we do that if we don't do right by ourselves? How will we combine our minds and actions? What's the web of relations in which we exist? How can we strengthen those ties and make them healthier? It's the work of those who happen to be alive to consider what we've inherited and decide what to discard, what to carry forward, and when to bring in fresh currents. So when you're listening to this episode, I invite you to consider what of what you inherited from your parents, from your family, from your culture. What of that do you want to keep and pass on, perhaps dusting it off a bit? What would you like to simply leave and compost? And what would you like to invite in, into the gaps, into the gaps of what you were given? What would you like to invite in so that you can pass that on as well? What is community? For this episode, I interviewed John Wolfstone, whom I met and became friends with here on Salt Spring Island on the west coast of Canada. He's a pretty interesting guy who's thought a lot about community and dedicated himself to it and has been part of some bold attempts. I've used many titles over the years. The title I've been currently using is Rites of Passage Guide. And for many years... You know, I was something of like, I'm a community designer or a community consultant. You know, I've been a student of community and somebody that's been vehemently building community and really chasing the community dream for you know, about a decade. And it really came to a place in my life about seven years ago when it was really clear to me during my own um, rite of passage, my own initiatory journey, that community or village, as we often like to call it, is the way humans evolved for 99% of our species' existence. And it is 100% where we are going by necessity. And a long time in the future, people will look back at this little blip moment where we had civilization, where probably good things happened and probably very necessary things 
but that the idea of humans living in mass, super dense, but disconnected areas will be a joke. And so I feel committed to the re-emergence or the regeneration of community on this planet. And I've been humbled time and time again, as many people have, by what it really takes to create this dream. And right now I'm in another big place of I don't know. And there's a lot of grief there. And yet I know there's no other way, so I just have to carry on. So what is community? Well, it's one of those big words like God, spirit, soul, or story. It comes from the Latin communitas, meaning that which is common, public, shared by many or all. A community could be as small as a family, as low commitment as a weekly martial arts class, or as all-encompassing as life in a monastery or ashram. In this episode, you'll hear the word used in a number of ways on a number of spectrums, but tending toward the broader, the deeper, that which asks more of us and gives more in return. It's not necessarily the same as a commune where everyone's living on the same land, sharing food and so on, although physical community is foundational to community, and the ingredient of shared basic needs is vital. Yet people may live together and depend on one another and not truly be in community. And especially in these times, community may come in bits and pieces from many directions, often from people we've never met physically. So if it's not just living together, what is community? A community starts happening when there is a collective identity that becomes a source point of belonging and also guidance for the people in it. There's something happens when people come together and move towards common dreams and also heal enough of their traumas that keep them in a place of scarcity and possessiveness and competitiveness with each other where a self-organizing principle or a emergent principle takes over it's when the whole becomes greater than the parts that's when community happens and that's actually a thing very few people have ever even experienced people have probably experienced it in synchronistic moments at a festival and there's like moments i think we've had are like a great moment on a sports team you know when like everything clicked but community is when that is like the way you live is in that state of there is this greater organism running the thing and people are feeding into that and people are self-aware. There's a collective identity in a group that becomes self-aware, like school fish or the way that starlings flock and they're flying and these murmurations occur where there's obviously some meta-organism that's no individual bird or individual fish running it, but they're operating as a whole. That's a community moment. Our bodies know that they belong. It is our minds that make our lives so homeless. Guided by longing, belonging is the wisdom of rhythm. When we are in rhythm with our own nature, things flow and balance naturally. Every fragment does not have to be relocated, reordered. Things cohere and fit according to their deeper impulse and instinct, 
Our modern hunger to belong is particularly intense. An increasing majority of people feel no belonging. We have fallen out of rhythm with life. The art of belonging is the recovery of the wisdom of rhythm. John O'Donohue How We Got Here Now, I don't know about you, but my life isn't replete with these community moments that John's talking about. I get them here and there, but there's a lot of time when I'm feeling disconnected from other people, like we don't quite have the right container or personal preparation to live in real communion with each other. It was not always so, and isn't now for everyone. If you consider a spectrum between fully overlapping lives on one side and full-on individualism on the other, the modern West is pretty far toward the latter. Coming back from India, I was always struck by how much personal space is required by people in the West and how put off they are when I crossed into that. So how is it that we went from living in multifamily longhouses, tents, and other communal, permeable dwellings to living in single-family homes or even in solo apartments? From harvesting our food directly and sipping from rivers to getting food from the supermarkets and water from the taps. We're as interdependent as ever, yet mentally and emotionally isolated. How we came to be this way is a big topic and not quite within the range of this episode. It's something that my wife, Jessie White, is very intrigued by, so she may do an episode on that in the future. But it has to do with the spread of colonialism, of people all over the world being riven from their lands and languages, and in turn, perpetrating the same to others. There's the theft of the commons, the rise of the assembly line, dependence on convenience, a lack of elders, a fear of each other, and a move from tribal to state society. And there have been some gains along the way, as well as losses. Somehow we got to where we are now, and many of us feel that the way that we live with each other now is not normal. Common in this age, yeah, but not normal in the great span of time. Not normal in the whole consideration of how we've lived as a species. Not like the way we grew up as a species, and not what each of us expected when we emerged into the world. Frances Weller speaks about gates of grief, entrances into grief. Of course, this includes the death of loved ones, chronic sickness, ecological collapse. The one that strikes me the most of these different gates of grief that he describes is the fourth gate, the grief for that which we expected but did not receive. To expect a village full with children, adults, and elders, people living their roles in different kinds of ways, all living deep and full lives, all glad to receive us newly among them, as one of them. To expect the passages of our lives to be marked and celebrated and to be welcomed upon our return, to be raised by many and in turn help to raise many others to find our purpose among the many interlinked purposes of our people. Instead, many of us received a single family with 
two adults or just one trying to stand in for a whole village. A few childhood friends. Fleeting relations with grandparents. Supervised play. And soon, oh so soon, an indoctrination into assembly line education for one, two, or more decades. How can we do better as a species if we're not able to grieve these insanely tragic events in history? This grief is in my soul, my bones, and my DNA. And my mind is really starting to notice it too. Belonging. There's a difference between fitting into a group and belonging. To fit in, I adjust my behavior, my presentation of who I am, whereas belonging doesn't depend on me changing, but rather expressing more and more fully who I am. I may fit into a group, then go through a major life change, and so no longer fit in. Whereas belonging speaks of acceptance through my changes as my deeper self gradually comes to light. It's notable that within the word belonging is longing, as pointed out by Tokopa Turner, an author and dream worker. Brene Brown also has a lot to say about fitting in versus belonging. The story of Cinderella gives a poignant comparison between these two. It's a story about coming into one's soul work in a deeper way, one's true fit, compared to trying to fit in. After Cinderella goes to the ball and leaves a glass slipper behind, the prince searches from door to door for the woman whose foot fits the slipper. Cinderella's stepsisters, desiring to be chosen and accepted, actually carve away at their own toes and heel in an attempt to make the foot fit, in an attempt to make it the right size. Trying to fit in compared to naturally belonging. Perhaps your hunger to belong is always active and intense because you belonged so totally before you came here. This hunger to belong is the echo and reverberation of your invisible heritage. Your longing desires to take you towards the absolute realization of all the possibilities that sleep in the clay of your heart. It knows your eternal potential, and it will not rest until it is awakened. John O'Donohue It strikes me that this invisible heritage that John O'Donohue speaks about could be taken in at least two ways. One being spiritual, about the time before this life began, before my sense of being a separate self took hold when I belonged without borders to the cosmos. The other meaning that comes to me is that in my ancestry, in my bones and DNA, I remember belonging to tribe and village in a way that I no longer do. To acknowledge this longing for belonging is to open up a door to both wonder and grief. To long for something so full is itself a wonder, just as having an excellent question is a great wealth. But also grief for this longing isn't easily sated, perhaps not in any time, and this time of ours is particularly 
out of sorts. History has washed a great deal of broken things up on our shores, so to live a whole life can be hard. Yet, this is also an amazing time of rebinding, re-knitting, resurfacing, and remembering. It's a time when the attacks of empire, in some places at least, are less brutal than before. A time when we can grow again. We live in a world that responds to our longing. It is a place where the echoes always return, even if sometimes slowly. John O'Donohue. Jessie White brings through feminine, earthy spirit into her beautiful artwork. She goes by the handle Seeds of Spells, and I would be remiss to omit, she is my lovely wife. She's been a big influence on my way of thinking about these things. You hear her in some of these words I'm speaking today, and this influence of her on me has often been in the face of great stubbornness on my part. So what is this ache to hold another world? This is what community can be comprised of. We can center ourselves around the common ache to hold a more beautiful world. We can't do this without becoming literate in grief work. It's the call of communities to develop a container where we can finally grieve for what's been done and is currently being done in the destruction of our sacred planet and each other and all of our sacred kin. Until we can come together and hold spaces where we can unravel and untangle and get into the mess of this grief and trauma and let it shake us clear of everything in the way and surrender to the mystery of what wants to come through this, then this crazy, ecocidal, genocidal machine will continue until we reach the end. But I, like so many of us, continue to hold an ache in my heart for another way. It's the ancient way, but it's also our new way that I I still believe we can make pathways together. And if my whole life belongs to one tiny micro-movement of a larger body of a neck just turning back to see what we've left back there, the ancient ancestral heritage that we all come from. We're millionaires. We inherit so much wisdom. If we could only learn to retrieve and activate that that we already have, that ache to hold that is what community can belong to. From loneliness, generosity may grow. From isolation, empathic leadership. If you're hungry, become bread. If you wish for the company of true adults and elders, become a true adult, become an elder. If you yearn for community, help to grow it. Exile.
Our world is made up of various groups centered around principles such as dress, religious beliefs, political views, interests, and so on. As long as members' views are aligned with those of a particular group, they fit in. Yet our views are bound to transform as we grow and change, and if a member undergoes a major change, this may jeopardize their inclusion in the group. A life well lived could be seen as a string of such transformations, each one bringing one deeper into oneself and one's work within the world. In such a rite of passage, where a person leaves their ordinary life and undergoes a transformation, a vital element is that the community welcomes them back. If they are not welcomed back, the deeper layers of self that they discovered may again be submerged. And so this person is faced with a choice to exile their transformation, or be exiled from the community. To keep from being pulled back into their old ways, they may need to go it alone or find another group that will accept them. Yet a true community is flexible and includes individuals who themselves have gone through many transformations. If this individual who's undergone a change is lucky enough to be in such a community. Then they will be welcomed back. They won't be expected to be as they were, but welcomed back as they have become. Their transformation won't cause their exile; it will be celebrated. Their courage to speak their authentic truth will not be punished; it will be rewarded. Leadership is forged in the hearts of those who know exclusion. To them. Is given the gift of tenderness, which may mentor another through their own isolation. Toko Paul Turner. Shared need. Longing for community is a magnetic force which can draw disparate clouds of humanity together for revelatory conversations and profound celebrations. And yet, there's another ingredient that's required for community to form, and that is basic and physical. It is need. While in India, my wife and I lived for some time in a small gated community where families and individuals had apartments which faced a common courtyard. We were all, broadly speaking, part of the same spiritual path, and we had goodwill toward each other. But things between us all never really gelled. The truth was that we depended far less on each other than on our bank accounts. We bought our food from the shops. We didn't grow it together. We liked each other, but because we didn't need each other, it never became a community. Up in North India. My wife and I stayed with Bihari people in Himachal Pradesh. They told us about the changes that they'd seen in their village during the last couple decades. People used to grow a lot more food, such as a local variety of red rice. They needed each other to do this, especially for busy times like planting and harvest. But as tourism in the area increased, people grew less. Many have come to depend more on the money from guest houses, tours, and restaurants than on each other. And as a consequence, the community is splintering. I'm convinced now that community only really happens when there's common basic need for food, shelter, raising children, and so on. The element of practical need must be there for community to form.
We have other needs besides, like companionship and support in the many challenges that life brings, each a potential opening into personal transformation. We humans have a need for relationships across a broad spectrum of ages and worldviews to nourish our mental microbiome. More than that, we have relationship with plants and animals, and if these are not honored, well, you can see that problem in the world today. Rowan White, a wise Mohawk teacher and writer, leads a process called seed rematriation, in which she guides diverse varieties of heirloom seeds stored in refrigerated vaults back into the indigenous communities who tended them for thousands of years and whom the plants tended in turn. These reunions are carried out with ceremony, with song and prayers and meaningful actions, and these ceremonies are a vital recognition of those relationships. She describes this beautifully on the For the Wild podcast and elsewhere. So, growing food is sacred. Survival and the holy are woven together. It is not that people must engage in sacred activities only in particular places and times, Community forms around the sacred bonds of survival, and ceremony marks the intimate changes in our many relationships. Marking life's changes. An individual's life. The communities. Or between the community and other species. Is also a vital need. What's come down to for me, which is why I call myself a rites of passage guide, is that culture is really built from human beings tending rites of passage for themselves, for each other. So I've seen community most organically happen in a beautiful way as a side effect when people were coming together intergenerationally to tend a rites of passage for, say, a baby being born or a 12-year-old you know, boy coming into that rite of passage at the age or coming together to help an elder become an elder or coming together around a adulthood initiation ritual event because that takes all the generations working together and i think doing that is the work of tending turning that wheel of life Mm -hmm. and that's why these rites of passage were central parts of other cultures Mm -hmm. but the side effect was the village had to all come together I think people need to enter rites of passage from community. The whole process of the rite of passage needs to be a cultural generating endeavor. The thing to go towards is culture. Community is a side effect of culture. So what does that really mean to build culture? Mm -hmm. I'd say in some ways, community is the vessel. It is the container and culture is the meal. So community is just how humans lived and naturally self-organized. The same way elk live in herds, mm-hmm. you know, in the like, winter months. It's like part of their cycle, right? They just socially organize that way. But the things they're doing is why. Mm-hmm. They aren't doing it just to be together. They're doing it because they need to stay warm. They need to stay protected is all the things, right? Mm-hmm. These cultural elements of us tending life and interacting with life creates this necessity for community to happen. The way community forms is that people have to go on a journey together and essentially have to go through rites of passage and initiatory events as a group. Mm -hmm. The community has to essentially have some breakdown Mm -hmm. and people reestablish their autonomy and their individuality and then come back together having gone through this rite of passage arc. Mm -hmm. 
So when people gather together, whether that be a community rite of passage, like say some big fire happened in your town, everybody comes together to mark that and honor that and hold that and, and practically deal with that. Mm-hmm. There's a great book by um, Rebecca Solnit. She observed through tracking all these tragedies, especially natural disasters, where these crazy spontaneous moments of community emerging, mm-hmm. like never before. And then people ended up saying, you know, Hurricane um, Katrina was some of the best time of their life uh-huh. because the people came together. I'm convinced of now, it is going to be taking apocalyptic level events for human beings to really shift on a mass cultural level because we actually need that pressure. It goes back to that. We actually need that pressure. Cohesion and freedom. While looking into the dynamics of community, a pairing of opposites keeps coming up, with a spectrum in between. On one side, group cohesion. On the other, individual freedom. And these play out in many ways. Cohesion, holding common principles, being in agreement about what is acceptable, important, and valued. A cell is defined by boundary walls. Our skin marks the borders of our body. It blocks some things from entering, keeps some things in, and expels others. Borders are needed. Without a common center, a group can fall apart. We see this common center most clearly, perhaps, in religious communities, especially in monasteries and ashrams. It's one reason why people join them, because they want these common agreements After all, it's hard to wake up for pre-dawn prayers when the guy in the bunk next to you gets in late from partying. These codes form a standard. Without them, the purpose of the community may be lost. Striving for openness, the group can lose its most loyal members. I found this during my time living in bhakti yoga ashrams in India. Those who had come for that particular philosophy didn't want to hear a lot of talk about other teachings, let alone about sports and movies. They had come to focus, and if there was too much other stuff, they would leave, and the purpose of the ashram would suffer for it. So rules are important, yet a closed system can become stagnant. Our skin is our body's boundary, and it is porous. A cell wall lets nutrients in. If only a single kind of teaching is discussed, its precepts will never be challenged. Adherence won't be pushed to grow. A community needs diversity. The word has become a bit tired these days, what with all the stock images of multiracial office teams high-fiving their way toward a big contract, all of them in the same game with the same goals and assumptions, same way of being, but different skin color. But some layers down, diversity has to do with our unique gifts. Each of us has a unique role. Inspired by Bill Plotkin, I might call this role our mythopoetic ecological niche discoverable by profound and sustained respect of oneself and others. Deep inside of you. You who are unique. And you who are unique. And you. And you. And you. And you. And you. And you. (laughs) When your presence is hospitable, the other can become their essential self and your company. Toko Paul Turner. 
All right, that's all very well and good when we all get to that elevated or deep point. But in the meantime, we need some codes to hold the groups together, right? Predetermined and emergent. Every group needs guidelines, whether the rules of the dojo or the precepts of religion, and such codes are often inherited. If someone is starting a farm community, they'll likely look to other such communities for guidelines about conduct, diet, work contribution, group communication, and so on. In the case of religion, there's not only codes of behavior to consider, but held beliefs about God, the world, life's highest goal, what is good and bad, who is to be considered holy and unholy. Adherents are expected to get in line or leave. And that's a quick way to create coherence for those who agree to those terms. But the problem with imitating groups from different cultures, different lands, and different times is that, well, context is important. When we think about communities, it's important to understand the context from which the communities are emerging. It's like soil; all the nutrients. Of that soil affect the community, so the communities aren't independent. And oftentimes, in religious communities, we get the understanding that they are like the matter doesn't matter around them. The soil doesn't matter from which the religion emerged, as if those things don't shape the religion. And context is the container shaping the substance, the emergent community, and so we have to be honest about that, and not to say that that's going to invalidate the religion. Would that really invalidate it? I mean, if your story is that matter doesn't matter, then yes, perhaps it would, because it would be saying that. Your religion was susceptible to the environment; therefore, it wasn't the supreme, all-knowing religion. Life needs to be breathed back in the compost of the religion itself. What would happen if we composted it? If we allowed for this other thing to emerge from it within the religious structure? You have. A leader who has the supreme ideal. The goal is to get everybody to understand that perspective, and so now we see there's a lack of diversity in soil, in our guts, in our human cultures, and thus in religious communities. What would it mean for a religious community to? Weave their current ecosystem into the practice, and I do think that people are doing that within the structures themselves, to the degree that they can. Each perspective performs a role within the human ecosystem. It's not coincidence that culture of the soil, of the gut, of the human realm. It's not coincidence that it's the same word. It's critical to have diversity. 
So religious communities often are the more successful community makers. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way that they prematurely squash conflict is by sort of saying, well, hey, if you come into this community, you're going to agree to our cohesion, which means that you obey within this structure, which is what colonialism does. It rewards obedience, punishes those that, you know, the change makers like Yahshua was, you know, one of the most rebellious people we know of in history. We have this interesting contradiction of worshiping the epitome of a rebellious person and then discouraging anybody within to ever rebel again. (laughs) My own experience with religion, there was this hunger in me to sing together as humans and to eat together, to develop a vocabulary around issues of the afterlife. I really wanted structure and I wanted some degree of certainty around these things. Because when you come from no structure, we're always trying to balance extremes inside. So it's like you might go to one extreme facet of structure and order and response to having none. And, you know, Bill Plotkin always talks about, especially in Wild Mind, the four facets, the north, south, east, and west. I'll jump in here to explain the four directions that Jesse's referring to. Depth psychologist and soul guide Bill Plotkin explains in his book, Wild Mind, about four aspects of the human psyche, which he's mapped onto the four cardinal directions. In brief, north is the generative adult within us. This is the part of us that takes responsibility, who is a solid adult and a citizen. South is the wild indigenous one, who knows that their body is of the earth and that the earth is endlessly miraculous. East is the innocent sage, the meditator, the big-picture thinker, and West is the muse-beloved, the one who leans into darkness to hear the whisperings of mystery. When I look back on my hungers in life and my drives, I can see how I'm always going between extremes to balance each facet So I think that my turning toward religion was a response to a real South experience. (laughs) I wanted something real North, you know, the adult orders, religions and structures have a lot of North and kind of East as well, which is the uh, innocent sage. You think of like a meditating monk. So we've got the four facets, but then we've got the spirit and soul. And soul work, it's like the the gravitas, the grounding energy. You know, you think of those words like grave, ground, gravity, that sort of gra, gra, that energy of grounding, the pulling down. And so religions, of course, that would make sense that the north and east would be permissible in the south and west facets of yourself, your wild 
bodily knowing ways to various degrees, those will be frowned upon or maybe just seen as like, oh, well, <laughs> forgivable, but not the goal of life. Chaitanya Berriot is a good friend and collaborator of mine. He's been on a quest for community for many years, moving between very different worlds with different understandings about what is true and important, and learning a lot along the way. I asked him to share his experiences, which light up unusual trails through this landscape of community. I grew up in an off-grid religious community. Located in a lush valley with a couple lakes and majestic mountains, where the alpine forest meets an expanse of sagebrush desert. Visitors are usually enamored with the idyllic setting and the noble aspirations for a spiritually guided, self-sustainable lifestyle in the heart of nature. As a youth in the early stages of this community, I often felt a lacking of warmth or depth of connection amongst its members. The rigorous parameters expected for daily religious practices, plus the challenging survival necessities for off-grid homesteading, perhaps did not allow much space for cultivating deeper relationships. Because it wasn't a unified effort, it was more like a number of independent homesteaders settling and developing their section of land that would come together for regular weekly religious gatherings. I perceived that the striving for a high level of spiritual practice, and therefore status, in this religiously oriented community detracted from more authentic expressions and relating. I believe this is due to the natural tendency for competitiveness and the expectations to appear as having it all together in both the religious and practical aspects of this agreed-upon community lifestyle. I observed that people would often try to hide or suppress their genuine, relatable human struggles and messiness. And, as I've now come to understand, we deepen in relationship when we courageously reveal our vulnerabilities, ask for help, and open to receiving support, and therefore facing struggles with a sense of camaraderie. So, I left this community and the family homestead as soon as I could, acquiring a vehicle and a driver's license at, at age 16, I was gone. <laughs> and I went seeking people and places where I could find inclusivity for the aspects of my curiosity and self-expression that had been frowned upon and even forbidden by the religiosity I had been immersed in. Plunging into the anonymous freedom of urban life with the plethora of people and diverse experiences available, I did find occasional experiences of warmth, connection, and acceptance, but they were fleeting and inconsistent. The majority of my independent urban living experience was of overwhelm and loneliness. I found I missed the consistent weekly gatherings with familiar faces who witnessed my journey and growth from week to week and year to year. And I really missed the soul-soothing group experience of devotional singing of hymns and prayers. In early adulthood, 
I would often return to the community of my youth and nourish my need for gathering and singing with familiar faces. And then I would again feel frustrated by the religious parameters of acceptable social behavior, which left me feeling confused. Confused that I was only acceptable if I conformed to the behaviors and expressions of belief that were not all that believable for me. I did try to understand the religious teachings that seemed complex and even contradictory at times. But when my questions were met with reactivity, condescension, and even criticism at times, I was left feeling ashamed and that I was odd, didn't get it, didn't fit in, and was therefore not welcome or safe to stay and belong and question and learn. So I ventured back out on my quest to find a sense of community where I could feel accepted and maybe even appreciated just as I am, without having to curtail my thoughts, feelings, curiosities, and perhaps more risque expressions. One day, I found myself in a gathering where a large group of people, guided by an indigenous elder, stood in a circle and gave all attention to one person at a time, as each person held a stick and spoke to the group uninterrupted. And when complete, there was just a gracious beat of receptive silence, and the stick was passed on to the next person. I don't recall what I said to that group of mostly strangers that day when the stick was handed to me. I remember feeling initially quite terrified as to what to say to this group of strangers, but the kind, patient, non-judgmental faces reassured me, and when I expressed myself, I felt accepted, respected, and even honored. And in that moment, I realized a missing piece of what I was yearning for and what made me feel community. And as precious as it was, the, the weekly gatherings where the community of my youth would sing and pray and eat together, I had never had this opportunity to stand up and speak and be heard by my whole community. Now certainly, the adults had their board meetings and logistical presentations, and they had reading nights where they had time to chat and share, but there was never this opportunity for the whole community, youth and all, to be invited to speak and share something. So I'm still on my exploratory quest, yearning to understand what contributes to a cohesive community in this world full of such diversity. But a few things I have concluded so far are that these three elements are very significant in creating community. The first being consistency in gathering together. To know that every week or every month, there's a time when I get to see my tribe, my community, my family, and gather and share and interact with them. The second being a shared experience 
of unified voices in joyful, soulful song or some other type of experience that is not just talking. And third, a safe space for singular voice to be heard with compassionate presence by the whole community. Imagine a group of people inhabiting their full selves, each sovereign and also interwoven, each bringing forth their gifts to share. It sounds a bit like a group of superheroes, maybe, but I reckon it's quite natural. Such full self, soul level diversity is anarchic. It's unmanageable because its power resides within each individual. Yet I believe that our deeper natures are coherent with each other, that there is a natural pattern in our interrelationship. There is a layer of self where individuals expressing themselves fully form a profound cohesion with each other. You could say that's how our souls relate. In the words of Wendell Berry, this is not the made order, but the given order. The way that self-organizing principle emergence moment in community happens is when fully autonomous individuals are then interacting. This is also the same reason that we need a relationship with things that are wild. We also need, we kind of, we kind of need to become wild, more old growth human beings. In this sense of when you have just like some kind of ideal you got off the shelf that the community's coalescing around, there's still an element of control. So people aren't actually autonomous or wild. So they actually are lacking certain necessary surface area of relationship that happens when people are actually autonomous or, or wild. Predetermined ideals handed down from other times and other places are often inflexible to the currents of this time, this place, these people. There's actually an upside to this. If a culture is invaded and subjugated, if the here and now becomes toxic to this culture, then adhering to what was determined to be good during better times could save the culture. A strict lineage can preserve teachings and lifeways in the face of adversity, like an ark rescuing species, keeping them alive for the time when the flood is going on and when that has passed, setting them down so they can spread out again. Creatures and teachings can then be safely freed from their container to reintegrate with the wider landscape. A downside of following predetermined teachings is that you end up preserving dysfunctions as well. Such bodies of teachings can be slow to reform and leave little place for ongoing revelation. I think you can have principles, but they have to be underneath. They have to be sub to a cosmology, uh, really a mythology too. You say what's in the center is really a story. That self-organizing principle, for me, it is something spiritual in that that power comes from uh, above, although I believe spirit and spirituality is everywhere and also down in the earth, but it comes from a greater source. So when there's a coherence in a group of people, they become attuned to actually be capable of drawing down almost like revelation from a greater source. And that's when community can happen. It's like a certain kind of flow state. Most of these old communities based around religion were static in that revelation happened 
And now we're living in the principle that came down from on high. And true community revelations happening now, in the moment. The community is experiencing revelation now, in real time, continuously. And it's that evolutionary mechanism of the current revelation is always a bit fresher, a bit more true than last week's spiritual edict or principle. So we can have principles. The whole complex culture comes from a set of principles, right? Like every culture, every um, indigenous group has either they're written down or not or stated many principles. Mm -hmm. But I think that indigenous groups kept evolving. Mm -hmm. And that's why they had elders to keep them in check and keep evolving. It's, It's that capacity to stay having revelation happening in real time. Ongoing revelation can be tricky, though. Coming from all quarters, unfiltered, There were times in history of competing prophets. The ones who got the validation of church and state ended up canonized in scripture. It was pretty chaotic, and it still kind of is. And that's where you have to have actual ritual and rites of passage, because it's one thing to get revelation from, like, a vision fast, and another thing to get revelation because you were sitting in your fucking tent spinning out in your head, you know? (laughs) Yeah, revelation happens real time but there's all these checks and balances and the thing is the checks and balances are the collective whole if anybody wants to build community right now i think we have to go beyond principles it's about the deeper organic sense of continued listening how do we actually interact with that self-organizing principle how do we create the conditions as a group of people for that to emerge what's been handed down has at least stood the test of time it's been honed like river stones These revelations informed us for so long, so why shouldn't they work for us now? The trouble is, these revelations often worked in very different times and places, and sometimes they never really worked that well at all. Many even served to strengthen the agendas of violent empires. Collective changes. Communities don't exist in isolation, but they're influenced by the patterns of the wider world around them. One of the really big collective issues that comes up when building community is land ownership. As I see it, in a true sense, no one can own land. How can we own that which precedes us, produces us, nourishes us, and will outlast us. I remember learning in school that Mount Kilimanjaro, the tallest mountain in Africa, is owned by Queen Victoria of England. The idea struck me as ridiculous. How could she possibly lay claim to a mountain? She'd probably never even been there, and even if she had, the mountain was millions of years old, and she's really just a blip. Her claim to own it is like me pointing to the night sky and claiming that, that, that star as my own. We can't really own land, just lay claim to it in agreements with other humans. As long as those agreements continue, we can say that we own the land. Also, on this continent at least, a great deal of the land that people claim to own was stolen from the First Nations people. If you trace legitimate ownership back a few generations, you'll find a theft. 
Couple that with the fact that much of the clearing and developing of land was done by indentured or slave labor, and you have a lot of criminal claims of land ownership. But in fact, the indigenous people here did not claim to own land. They had agreements about the use of land, but the premise that an individual or even a group could legally own land was, so far as I know, brought in by European settlers. The clash between settlers and natives is largely a clash between the idea of private ownership and the idea of collective inhabitation of land. As a society, we do require ways of deciding who gets to inhabit land, who gets to fish, grow food, irrigate with well water, and so on. Right now, private ownership is our main way of making that determination. But, and here's the point. There is currently no coupling between the capacity to purchase land, on the one hand, and the capacity to tend land, on the other. To purchase land, a person needs money, and to do so, they may work, invest, maybe inherit. None of these prepare a person for land stewardship. Currently, huge sums of money often go to tremendously irresponsible people. Who can then buy up multiple sections of land to inhabit, or to strip bare? Some of the most lucrative ways of making money in current civilization are actually the most destructive to land. Again, the capacity to purchase land and the capacity to tend it are not currently linked. The right to live on a specific section of land and the responsibility to care for it are not currently linked. But what if this were switched, and the right to tend a particular section of land was given to those who are in deepest relationship with that specific land, most able and ready to care for it? If I'm going to try to own land, there's so much weight in that system,、yeah. and people underestimate this when they start to build community. And all the problems start because of the power dynamics with land ownership, because you ultimately are doing it still in a capitalist system. Those people are doing things like co-ops and these things, and those are beautiful. And I've not seen anybody really nail it, where it doesn't have problems that are making the community experience very hard. How many lands actually need positive human occupation are vast, and they don't need to be a land that you own.、Mm -hmm. If we're going to be involved in the legalities of land ownership. Probably the conversation most important to be having is land back, and how are we giving those lands back to indigenous peoples? Is one step of undoing that system that exists, and then well, how do humans live on land together? And I think well, where can we go occupy land that makes the most sense? Is that a national forest that we tend really well, and hopefully people aren't going to kick us off and they see what we're doing? Is that going and trying to build community in places like Fairy Creek? That's a place where they're cutting down old growth trees here in BC that needs our presence. Is that to go build community where indigenous people are already protecting certain sacred lands? Where is it needed? Probably where we need to go with broken pieces of land. We should probably go to the land people don't want to kick us out because it's a really degraded piece of land, and we go bring our healing energy there. Maybe it's not for us to go seek and hide out in the more beautiful virgin forests of the world.、Mm. Maybe, but also let's go to the really trash place and clean it up. Because、mm -hmm. who else is going to do it?、Uh -huh. And nobody probably wants to go there, so no one's going to complain.、Mm -hmm. And this is this is what's happened with squats in like、mm -hmm. Detroit. 
every three houses became vacant Mm -hmm. and people started forming communities because no one wanted it. And it was broke down crap places that they made beautiful. Humans, we are scavengers and we fill a scavenging role in a landscape in certain ways. Hunter-gatherer means like scavenger at some level. It's like a bear. We need to start looking through that lens of where is there a cultural niche that needs filling? I think we need to really be willing to lean into the muck in that kind of way. Perhaps, especially here in the first world, instead of building new communities of developing land, we need to create communities of decomposition. Taking a tip from fungus, we might break down, transform, reinvent. My Tribe Through Darkness Comes Shining by Carol Bridges When all is covered with dark lies, thick like debris from fallen towers, my people pick up hearts. When all that is shown is tinted with black greed and stained with blood from false wars, my people wipe away tears. When even food is fake and whole forests fall like leaves and great ocean whales can hardly breathe, my people still sing from the beach. They sing a humble song with full voices, crying out for the wisdom any creature will share. My people are reapers of the waste of humankind, willing to take anything tossed aside and build with it a temple. My people see in every scrap a glimmer of the miracle of creation to be brought forth through their hands. Bring it on then, I say, let it all fall down into our laps, into our receiving hands, into our welcoming hearts. We'll make a new world out of anything you give to us. Song, story, and ceremony. Now we come to that which is dearest to my heart and pulses in the heart of communities both old and new. This podcast began as an exploration of story, and I'm discovering just how fused story is with song. More on ceremony in a moment. Many of the oldest stories are in the form of songs, like the Odyssey and the Bhagavad Gita. Stories also contain teachings in the form of one character advising another, as well as in how events play out, indicating considerations for the listeners. The whole world of a story, its structure, and the interrelationships between the characters informs the listener's understanding of our world. Songs could be more easily remembered by teller and listener than prose, and in cultures where stories are not written down, this is especially important. Songs also bring added exclamation and mood to stories, grammar and subtext in an oral telling. Contemporary storytellers often open, punctuate, and close their stories with song and rhythm. The great sea 
Songs carry listeners from the everyday into the world of the story, weave threads around them, and carry them safely back. Songs can be sung by both tellers and listeners. Sharing a beat and melody brings a group together. It synchronizes our nervous systems, our breathing, our minds. A collective mind may emerge. I've often felt in meetings that if we were to begin by singing and drumming together, our spoken communication would go a lot more smoothly. I remember hearing of a First Nations man who said, Settlers talk for five hours and maybe sing and dance for a few minutes. We sing and dance for five hours and talk for a few minutes. I hope you won't find it too ironic if I continue speaking about song. I'm thinking of group songs. An individual in a group song may have a particular part to sing that mirrors their part in the community. Story, too, need not have a single teller. Others can enter as particular characters or to narrate certain passages of the story. The telling then becomes participatory and it changes each time it's told a living story. I've heard of nomadic groups who, at particular places and times in their annual cycles of movement, will meet with other groups to join in large intertribal gatherings. These gatherings are often centered around abundant harvests, around salmon runs, ripe berries, sweet sap. At this time, there are unions and reunions. And at this time, stories are told that are not told at other times in the year. These are stories that are only told when these different groups gather. And the people from the diverse groups have parts to play in the telling. These shared tellings affirm and reaffirm the stories and teachings that they all hold in common. This idea fascinates me. What if, in the halls of the United Nations, for example, those stuffy desks where the delegates sit had drums and other instruments from their country of origin dangling there? What if more emphasis were placed on singing and storytelling than on trying to convince each other of rational points? And if the songs included the beings from each person's land of origin so that those plants and animals would have a place in that assembly of humans in the form of song. What if a treaty or trade agreement had to include at least one shared story and song? to be enacted and adjusted each year, organic, living, a coding of the relationship between people, between lands, 
Then there's ceremony, which includes both song and story. Teacher and therapist Francis Weller maintains that all arts originate in ceremony. Dancing, singing, story, painting of skin and stones, carving sacred objects, all originate in ceremony and are contained within it. In ceremony, the stories we live by are renewed and enlivened. My own experiences with ceremony are mostly either formally religious or secular, like graduations. The secular ceremonies felt like fragments of what ceremony could be, with major components shrunken or missing. I remember some song at my high school graduation, but it was blasted on the speakers without much thought, just so we could dance along. I didn't get a sense then of a deep connection to my ancestral past, to the moment of time in which we lived, to what was being asked of us, graduates, on a soul level, or to the wider human and other-than-human world. But at least the passage was marked in some way. I felt the religious ceremonies were richer with a spiritual purpose in the center. For me, this was a smattering of Christianity growing up and more so the culture of bhakti yoga as a young adult. We sang songs together for the pleasure of Radha and Krishna, goddess and god, the center of our community. We made altars and temples, read scripture, worshipped deities with incense, lamps and fans, walked barefoot on pilgrimage while singing, and heard many, many stories which interwove into a tapestry of growing intricacy within my mind over the years. These were all things that I did not grow up with, in my more or less secular household. I did not find them in Christianity, and I was thirsty for them. They felt like important parts of being human that my birth culture had mostly lost. And yet, as I experienced these expressions of song, story, and ceremony, I couldn't help but think of what such expressions in other cultures might be like. What if I was learning components of human culture? How might other cultures hold these same components? The world hosts many languages, for example, each unique in flavor and meaning, each grown from place, each essential to those who speak them. It seems that story, song, and ceremony are equally important components of human culture with kaleidoscopically diverse expressions. I had learned these components in a particular tradition, bhakti yoga or Gaudiya Vaishnavism specifically, and I wondered how others carried them. In joining one culture... I didn't want to have to invalidate those other expressions. It was beautiful to enter an ancient lineage, yet I desired more porous boundaries. What was the nature of my ancestors' ceremonies? How does story and ceremony grow organically from people and place? 
So I'm learning. I've made a few simple altars in the woods, come up with some songs and stories, participated in ceremonies from other traditions, as well as mixed or emergent ones. I feel I'm at the beginning of this part of my life journey, an infant in this new stage. And it feels like, kind of like flying without any navigation, but I think I like it. Singing together is also a way of learning about the nature of our communication together. It can be seen as a way of working through the dynamics of group communication without getting sidelined by a particular hot topic or decision on the table. When singing together, we might observe who takes the lead. It's not bad if it's mainly one person. Maybe they're holding the song for everyone. Other people might feel more tentative. Or does the song leader tend to cut off new inspirations and push their own vision of the song? How are wipeouts in the song experienced by the group where you lose the rhythm or the melody or it all kind of goes sideways? How do you handle that together? Do you feel embarrassed or do you laugh about it in a a way, a self-forgiving kind of way? Are you surrendered to what emerges or do you cling to the structure you started with in the song to avoid the turbulence of change to another part? There's the question of what to sing. Maybe everyone there has great songs in common, but maybe not. Songs with words have a particular charge you may or may not want to call in. Simple phrases can work well, or even just sounds and melodies. My friend Blair Francis and his partner Elisa host vocal freedom circles. Blair doesn't start by teaching people to hold a tune. He starts with sighing, grunting, humming, just getting used to the instrument of our voice, our diaphragm, our lungs, our vocal cords, our mouth just with gentle expectations, learning what it can do. Now be generous. Let's do it again. Be generous with that voice. He said once it's like a kind of kindergarten, and I agree, and that's a really good thing. I'd say don't be afraid to be silly. Herbalist Asia Solar says that silliness brushes the edges of cultural norms, like a child putting a shoe on her head. It's funny and makes people happy. It also breaks open other possibilities for being outside the norm. So when you're acting silly, making weird sounds, or pretending to be a tree, why not embrace it and let the emergent flow come through? Sit with that awkwardness, pass through it into the realm of deep play. After all, as adults, we've had far more time to hone our play than kids have. We should be really expert at it by now.
As we come to the end of this first episode, I'd like to say that I told you so. I told you that it wouldn't be comprehensive, that you'd gain no clear answers, that this would just be a small excursion into this vast territory that I myself don't really know much about. And I told myself this about the limits of this exploration as well. As nice as a bullet point list about how to find your soulmate community would be, I wouldn't believe such a list. Alas, the territory is complex and foggy, and maybe the best we can do is to describe the lay of the land a little and get to know a few landmarks, to send out a mage light to shed a few sparks of light on the meadows and crevices that we find ourselves wandering together. These in-depth episodes are quite a meditation for me as well, and I, I have gotten a clearer sense of the kind of community I'm looking for, that there'd be a dynamic interplay between personal sovereignty and the soul of the group, a deep respect for each of us, for each other, and for the land, that there's people I can learn to depend on and with whom I can learn to become dependable that we conscientiously learn from ancestry, from land and spirit, from other cultures, from each other, and from the times we're in, that we engage in deep play, explorations of creativity to gain fresh and true perspectives. So I've come to accept that this dream community of mine doesn't exist, and that I'll have to help make it, and that this struggle will call me forth that this is this is part of it this is important the second and final episode on this topic coming in a month will explore tending toward community that is some pathways between the wild and woolly places that we find ourselves now and where we're aiming to go it seems this really is intergenerational work and that it's already happening and some of it's been happening for generations as well. It just doesn't make the news. <laughs> this tending toward community could include workshops, online communities, attempts within communities for coming together a bit more and then stepping back. And we'll be hearing from some pioneers in these spaces. We'll also touch on nomadic communities, which it may be is the original form of community and which doesn't really mean just wandering anywhere throughout the year, but usually is to do with cycles and with harvesting and tending in different parts of the year, and which has big advantages in places where there's wildfires. You know, you see here in BC, Canada, you see people will be defending their homes against these wildfires, whereas nomadic community would just move to another place during the wildfire season. It also has the advantage of staying in touch with different parts of the land throughout the year uh, in terms of storying the lands and keeping the myths, mythological connections between people and the land alive, like Tyson Yonkaporta talked about in the last episode. And we'll actually be hearing from Tyson Yonkaporta again. Uh, he's working with the Deakin University Indigenous Knowledge Lab team. He's part of that team. And they're developing visions and 
experiments for contemporary nomadic communities, which really connects to another strong theme in next month's episode, which is the relationship between strong intra-human community and inter-species communities. So our relationship with each other and how that affects our individual and collective relationship with the wider world, with all the other communities in which we are interwoven. So you can help this podcast by going on over to StoryPaths at Patreon, StoryPaths, two words, and signing up for one of the tiers there. There you'll also receive this month's artwork, which is themed around this episode, themed around community. It'll be coming a little later in the month, depending on when you listen to this. And in the higher tier, I'll mail you a print or a comic in some months, depending on what's coming out that month. Otherwise, you'll get that in digital form in the lower tiers. There's also going to be a fresh story this month on the theme of community. This month, the story is called Boats, and it has to do with various kinds of vessels as holders for different kinds of communities, all sailing different directions on the wondrous and terrifying river of life, each with their distinct strategies and moods and hues of being. As always, I invite you to share this with friends or with groups that you're part of, anyone that may be interested in what you've heard here today, something that resonates with you, you can pass it on to others. You can find me on Instagram at storypaths underscore podcast. I'll put that link in the show notes. And if you have any questions, discussion points about the podcast, that's a good place to do it. Otherwise, on Patreon as well. All right. So best wishes to you and to your communities that you find yourselves in. May we learn and grow together and apart as we are called to do. Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas, that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part, I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donoghue, may you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, and behind the facade of your life, there is something beautiful and eternal happening. 
And so we close. <laughs>